The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Follow along as I read the first four verses of Second Peter chapter 1. Simeon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is God's Word. Let's pray that He applies it to us. Father, here is this new letter we haven't yet explored, and we ask that You, by Your Spirit, bring it alive to us and show us what You want us to hear, that we might also rise and obey by faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. By watching that great reality TV program that all young people enjoy, Antiques Roadshow, (laughs) I have become a bit of an aficionado of how to identify older objects in this world that may have great value and to try to determine what are fakes and copies that do not have great value. I've seen a lot on Antiques Roadshow, for example, of Tiffany products of the Tiffany Company. And uh, people will come in with brightly colored uh, desk lamps or table lamps that are, uh, they think are Tiffany glass. And if they are, they're worth quite a lot of money. But there are others that are not Tiffany, and some people go away quite disappointed at that. My wife and I have an interesting uh, object that... Uh, would fit into this category of determining the fake versus the genuine. Through Carol's mom, we have a violin that was bought for her, her mom, in the early 20th century. And uh, it's not in wonderful condition. It needs uh, reworking and repairs. But once, quite a lot of years ago, 25 years ago, we had it already. And I got, I got it out one day and just decided to examine it a little bit, and I got a flashlight and shined it in the, the, you know, the S opening on the top of the violin, and inside was a label, and I read the name of a French name in there that I was not familiar with, and the date, 1836. Well, that got me kind of intrigued that this violin was it actually that old. 
So we embarked, uh, this is back before we ever came to this church, we embarked on uh, some trips to different people in the Northeast that we were told were the top violin appraisers, and whatever they said about this violin would be accepted by just about anybody. We went to two different gentlemen, and uh, well, here's what we found out, that uh, top violin makers, luthiers as they're called, uh, used to, of course, have students or apprentices who they would teach how to make violins. And uh, the sad side of the story is that the students, we learned, were allowed when they worked under the master violin maker to take the master's label and put his label in their product. So we had either the master's violin or the students, and both experts said, you have the students. Unhappily, after traveling many miles to find it out, that made a difference of about $20,000. So uh, I didn't get Antiques Roadshow to tell me that, but I found out the difference between the genuine article and the fake, or, or not fake, but, you know, just not made by the master. Well, imitations in the realm of art or antiques can tend to make fools out of unwary collectors or buyers, but in Christianity, too, there are cheap copies of the gospel of Jesus Christ that are manufactured and sold, in a manner of speaking, by some people, some who are deliberately deceitful about that, and others who are just badly mistaken, but nevertheless may be leading people astray. As we begin this second epistle of Peter, written to a general audience, you're going to find that one of the dominant themes of this little letter is that Peter is concerned that people would put their trust in the genuine, authentic gospel that centers upon the good news of God's grace, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The second epistle of Peter reminds people in all centuries from the first century onward that there is an ever-present danger of being fooled by Christian fakes. And in fact, you're going to find chapter 2 of this little letter has some of the most fiery language, uh, really scoring those who Peter calls false prophets, and he tries to describe how you know such a person and what will happen to such people. Well, before we get too much into that, I, I do want to just have a sidebar introduction here because... You need to know something about 2 Peter, otherwise somebody would say, oh, that Rogers is just ignorant of the fact that 2 Peter doesn't belong in the New Testament. There will be reputable professors at universities and seminaries today who would tell you that, well, this doesn't belong. It shouldn't be here. And that has been an issue from early going. 2 Peter was a letter that in the squabbles of the early centuries as to what authentically came from the apostles and should be in the, what we call the canon, the collection of Scripture, Second Peter was viewed as being on the outs for hundreds of years, really. And it was a controversial book and still is in some quarters today. Now, the main issue, there's, there are others, but the main issue is that you can't see it in the English, so the difficulty is kind of invisible to you. If you're just reading English, you say, what's the problem? But if you read Greek fluently, I don't read it fluently. I read it with stumbling. 
but I know enough about it and the issues involved to know that there are great differences of style and language between these two letters. And while the claim is being made that Peter wrote these, the one in the early 60s A.D., when persecution was beginning to heat up, and this one probably pretty close to his death in 67 or 68 A.D. And if I could make this kind of a comparison, people would say, well, the Greek style and vocabulary is such that the one might have been written by William Shakespeare and the other by C.S. Lewis in the 20th century. They're that different in the Greek. So how can they fulfill the claim that these are two letters from the same apostle. Well, if you, know, if you want to find fault with God's Word, you can always figure out ways to do it, believe me. But there really is a pretty simple thing that we think is the solution to that difficulty. I certainly believe it's a very credible and logical solution to the difficulty. And that is that we know that many of the New Testament letters had a scribe or someone, the, actually the formal name, if you want to learn a word for the day, was the amanuensis, and amanuensis was a scribe or a secretary that Peter would dictate to, and this fellow would write down what was being said by the person of authority who was writing. That's certainly common enough in uh, business today. I mean, many of you, although we don't have stenographers so much anymore, today we do have, for example, court stenographers who take down everything that is said in a courtroom. And that's not a complicated idea. That the scribe would write down the, the issues, the content that the authoritative person was dictating, but he might, in writing, choose his own word here or there or say it in a slightly different way than the, the man said it. And his style and his personality would appear on what was written. We think that is the best explanation for why Second Peter does have that different appearance. And I urge you not to consider it as a second-class or somehow disqualified letter. It is not. But those who want to criticize it will persist in that even today. Well, here's several things I want you to see just in these first four verses, which is all we have time for today. Uh, first of all, Peter is writing... And by the way, of course, he uses his name here, Simeon Peter. So if this is not Peter, then it's someone who's absolutely false, who is pretending to be Peter but isn't and should be rejected if indeed that's what he's doing. But there are many clues, and we'll note some of them as we go along, where Peter's experience surfaces in a pretty authentic way. The first thing we see in verses 1 and 2 is this, that our gospel, the gospel we have received and in which we trust, is of equal standing with that of the original apostles. Now, an apostle, of course, was a very unique person, someone who had to be a witness to the resurrection of Christ, who had walked with him, who knew him personally. You remember at the beginning of Acts when they, the apostles got together, there were 11 of them left with Judas dead, and they said, we need to replace Judas, and when they chose Matthias, but their criteria was someone who has walked with us from the beginning and was the witness of the resurrection. There are no apostles today. There have not been apostles from the second century onward. But these men, of course, were God's repositories of truth to give us 
the New Testament. And if an apostle is not associated in some way with a New Testament book, we do not see it as having full repute. There are cases, for example, Mark was not one of the early apostles, but he was sat at the feet of Peter, and we believe the main doctrine of Mark was gleaned from Peter, and that Mark was the one who learned these things from Peter. Well, here's an apostle, or a claimant, and we're accepting his claim, that Simon Peter is a servant of Jesus Christ and an apostle who is writing now to say, I want all of you folks, some of whose faces I will never see, to know that you have the same faith on an equal standing with mine as an apostle. I am saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, his death for me, his resurrection for me, and so are you. Peter could, but could have been echoing what Jesus said in John twenty twenty nine, when Jesus himself said, Blessed are you who have seen me and believe, apostles. Blessed also are those who have not seen me and believe. This is an important thing that Peter's saying. You don't have a second-class salvation. You have the same authentic word from God and witness from God as I have responded to. And he fleshes that out with a little bit of content here in this brief statement. You've obtained by faith equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's picking up a very important word that, for example, figures into Romans. As Romans talks about a righteousness that is not of human origin, but is God's gift, the actual righteousness, Romans 3, that important passage where it says, but now we have a righteousness from God, not of human performance. Here, Peter's echoing that. Uh, we have the righteousness of an important statement here, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you weren't paying attention, you might just slide by that naming of Christ and say, yeah, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what? Well, so what? That's one of the very few places in the whole New Testament where Jesus is so named God and Savior, Jesus Christ. No question here in Peter's mind that he's talking about the divinity of Jesus Christ, not a mere man, not a mere prophet, but the divine Son of God. So at the very core of the authentic gospel is apostles have brought us this witness that God himself in the person of Christ has given to us a gift of righteousness something we don't have ourselves. And this is the very core of the whole thing. Now, I know this is elementary to most of you, but it's important to hear the elementary things. I don't have righteousness. I'm not born righteous. I'm born unrighteous. But here comes the Son of God to become my Savior and to bring me a borrowed righteousness that is more than adequate to cover my need for righteousness. All right? Secondly, we hear Peter say here in verse 3 that God has not saved us by faith in Christ and then just left us to kind of figure the rest out for ourselves. No, he's given us salvation by righteousness of Christ, but then he's done this. He has given us everything we need 
for living in a godly manner while we continue walking through this world, a life of faith. Peter says God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, through knowing God and Christ. God, who first called us to Christ, enables us to keep looking to him and gain the resources that we need, powerful resources. Notice it says it comes by divine power, something supernatural at work in us, giving us resources like wisdom, guidance, strength, godly behavior. And this, to me, seems to be that you could summarize it by saying there's no such thing in God's eyes as an inadequately supplied Christian. If we are incomplete in this world, it is not that God has failed to provide for us what we need to live Christian lives. It's that we're not using what has been provided. You can almost think of it as the idea that God opens a spiritual bank account for a believer in your name and regularly makes deposits of his own power, his courage, his mindset, the things that we need to direct us in this world. And there's enough in that account if we will write checks and draw upon that account, more than enough to supply our need to live a Christian life. But what do we do? We do what I did just recently, leave the checkbook home and go out ready to pay for something, and whoops, I don't have the checkbook. I'm not having in my hand the resources that I need to draw upon. The Holy Spirit working in me, prayer, Scripture, all these things are part of what God has supplied us when it says all that we need, all the things we need that pertain to life and godliness. And notice the emphasis, too, on the knowledge of God. That's where I could go off and spend a lot of time and cannot. But, you know, one of, certainly one of the great Christian books of the last century was Jim Packer's book, Knowing God. You all know that I read books, and I read a lot of books. And uh, I, if I had to come up with some kind of a ranking of the great books, Christian books, that is, of the last century or the last 50 years maybe, there isn't any question that Packer's knowing God. If, that's, if that book is strange to you and you're a reader, get Jim Packer's, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, a truly great book that summarizes the Christian life by gaining the knowledge of God that he provides. Very well written, very helpful book. We have been granted true knowledge of God himself by being adopted into his family of faith as he has given us new birth. We call God our Father. And we know then that Christ goes to work in us and gives us himself. It's a marvelous thing that we know God. It's not like knowing something. You know, our students are starting to or will be soon trickling back from colleges and universities where they've been studying mechanical engineering or chemistry or nursing or who knows what. And, and they're building a body of knowledge which hopefully they can graduate and then move out into a career and put to use that knowledge, apply that knowledge to real needs and job situations, whether it's business accounting or something else. Well, 
to have the knowledge of God, think of it, is not like getting a knowledge of nursing or a knowledge of mechanical engineering. It's a divinely given, granted gift that we can't get it on our own. We can't just say, I want to study God. We can speculate. People go off and do that. We call them philosophers. And they speculate about God and say, well, I think this theory of this is the way to know God, or you need to think this way, or Plato said this, and so on. Listen, we we aren't just philosophers when we talk about knowing God. We have a revealed knowledge of God that he has given through his word. That's altogether different than philosophy. We can have true knowledge of the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. A third point is, is really, it, it culminates the other two, but it's fantastic that what it states. Second Peter 1.4 is a climax to this short passage. Because in the third place, I'm saying to all of you Christians, you participate in God's own nature. You see that in the passage there? So that through the precious and great promises found in Scripture, you may become partakers of the divine nature. That is what some people would call a mind-blowing statement. It's a staggering statement. Now, the problem is that some people run the wrong direction with this and say, we must be gods then. We are little pieces of God. And there are those groups, cults, and other groups that falsely teach that we are gods and goddesses. The Bible does not teach that. It does say that we have the gifts of God's own nature by the Holy Spirit imprinted on us, and the divine nature actually molds us and shapes us and turns us to have God be visible in us, although we're still human beings. God initiates the new birth in a believer. And God carries that new birth forward to bring a supernatural dimension to operate in our lives. It's it's the reason why the New Testament would have Paul say, it's no longer entirely I that lives, but Christ who lives in me. The imprint of the divine nature is there in a believer. I like the way Peter states it here, and he, he makes it as concrete as possible when he says, The way we get a hold of this in verse 4 is by the promises God has made as we recognize a promise from God and believe it and act upon it. The Bible, you could say, is a a book of promises. And we pick up promises like this. uh, There's now no condemnation for them who are in Christ. Really? No condemnation for me? All right, I'm going to believe that and act upon it. Another promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. All right, I'm going to act upon that promise and believe that Jesus meant it. Another promise, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. And you see, you could go on with dozens of promises. What a Christian is really doing is living and grasping the many promises of God. The writer John Bunyan said a long time ago this, Quote him, the pathway of a Christian with a Bible in his hand is strewn so thickly with promises from God, 
it is impossible for that Christian to take a step without treading upon them. I love that language. Your walk every day, Christian, if you've got a Bible in your hand and you're reading it and you're marking it, and maybe you even keep a promise book or something and write down promises from God. Bunyan's saying you can't take a step without stepping on the promises. So are you doing more than stepping on them? Are you trusting in them? Are you basing your life on them? Are you saying, I stake my existence to these promises? That's how we know God. We live out His precious promises. By the way, little footnote for those who say Peter didn't write this. Well, uh, if the forger was so clever, what he did here was take one of Peter's favorite adjectives, precious, which he used three or four times. It's a fairly unique Greek word that Peter used in 1 Peter, and it pops up in 2 Peter. So if this is a forgery, there's one of the points where the guy said, oh, I better use Peter's favorite adjective and call it precious. I don't think so. I think this is Peter calling the promises of God precious, priceless, above human value, And I can believe that these things are God's promises to me. And I will come to know him as I act on and grasp hold of divine promises. What happens as a result? The knowledge of God works in you. And you, more and more, begin by little millimeters at a time of growth to be more and more like Christ himself. That's a transformational experience. You know, how many of you have ever actually seen your grass grow? These last weeks, perhaps you'd say, well, if I sat in a lawn chair long enough and just stared at it, I probably would. I know I've been trying to get mine mowed for several days, and I'm going to need a hay baler pretty soon. But uh, I've never seen my grass grow. But I do know if I mow it on a Saturday, chances are by the following Thursday, it's going to be saying, mow me, mow me because it has grown a couple of inches. I didn't see it happen, but I see the result. That's a little bit like the growth of a Christian life, I think. Many people get discouraged and they think, well, I'm not growing. I I don't see myself changing into the likeness of Christ. But if other people who are watching them are discerning about it, they would say, you know what? I see George really has changed. It it happens real slowly, incrementally, barely notice it over a day or or a week or even a month, but, but it's happening as the knowledge of God in Christ is happening in a life. We're becoming more and more like Him. You could almost say that the presence of God, this partaking of the divine nature is like handling radioactive material that cannot help but mark our lives. I'm sure some of you uh, are knowledgeable, and this has been in different history uh, presentations of various kinds, and I think, it, uh, I think I'm on a correct ground that even the Bulova company that operated here in Lancaster had this going, that they were using radium, am I right, some of you, that to actually mark the dials of watches and clocks that they were making so you could, you know, actually wear a watch. Younger, younger generation, do you know what this is? You know, if you're under 20, do you know what this is? You've got it on your cell phone. You say, what in the world would I put that on my wrist for? But you all, most of you can remember when watches and clocks had the little stroke of greenish material that was actually radioactive material that would glow in the dark. They can't use it anymore, of course. 
But factory workers actually were exposed to this radioactive paint. It caused serious illness and even death, I guess, to some people before they knew the harm of it. Well, I think we're saying that the knowledge of Jesus Christ in our lives is a little bit like handling radioactive material, only it's not deadly, it's life-giving. And it cannot help but transform those who are being changed degree by degree by a genuine article gospel, not a fake gospel, a gospel that is the same one preached by the apostles, will work in you and do in you everything that is needed for life and godliness. Without Christ, you see, you don't have this at all. You are nothing spiritually, and you're headed nowhere. But when you begin to entrust your life to Christ, you possess a genuine supply of everything that eternity requires of you through Christ. And I don't know how anybody could ask for anything more than that. Thanks be to God. Father, we, we look forward to hearing more about this letter. Peter was in a tumultuous time when there were many false teachers, much persecution. Christians had to take a stand and make decisions. Would they stand with Christ or would they follow some charlatan? Father, the voices are so many and confusing in our world. Help us to be staked to your word and to its authentic message. May we hear and see Christ and value him alone as our guide and Savior to eternity. In his name we pray. Amen.